Funding for WPLN News comes from you, our listeners, and Bernstein Private Wealth, working with creators and innovators to invest with intention and build the legacy they want to leave behind. More at Bernstein.com. This is Nashville. I'm senior producer Steve Harouche, sitting in for our host, Khalil Ecolona. In 1920, black farmers made up 14% of all food producers in the United States. Today, that number sits at just over 1%. Now, while the number of black farmers is not what it once was, here in Tennessee, there are communities of black farmers who've been producing food and livestock for decades. So what does the future look like for black farmers? Will the next generation keep the long-established traditions going? What challenges are they facing now? To kick off this hour, we're going to start with how a looming billion-dollar development is affecting black farmers in our region. We're talking about Blue Oval City, Ford Motors' $6 billion electric truck manufacturing plant. Ford broke ground a year ago at the site near Memphis, and in the time since, there are signs of economic prosperity popping up in rural West Tennessee. But as the Tennessee Lookout's senior producer Anita Wadwani reports, black farmers in the surrounding communities are taking a hit. Our host, Khalil Ekolona, spoke with Anita Wadwani last week. Anita, thanks for being here, and welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me, Khalil. Really great to have you with us. So, you know, this has been a massive project, and it certainly looks like it will change things for West Tennessee. What led you to this angle, and about how this development will be affecting Black farming communities? I think that the... What's happening in that region around um, the new Blue Oval plant um, is is just something I'm interested in as a journalist. I think that community is poised to completely transform. And there's going to be winners and losers in that process. And the story I, I, I focused on about um, uh, community, a community of Black farmers out there um, see themselves as uh, potentially losers. So, you know, your report details that Black landowners in West Tennessee are basically getting lowballed from the state for their land, right? Uh, that's the the sense that the families that I talk to have. So in order to connect the new Blue Oval plant to the freeway, there is uh, a connector being built. Uh, from I-40 to the new Blue Oval plant that goes through traditionally Black farming communities. And the state needs uh, 35 tracts of land, 35 different properties in order to build that roadway. And so they're currently in the process of acquiring land, either through negotiating with the landowners or taking them to court to take that land. Mm-hmm. Well, how bad of a deal do these farmers stand to get? They feel like it's a a pretty low ball amount for what the land is currently going for out there. Now, this is an area, as I said, that's poised to have a lot of development out there. And there are you know, waffle houses going in, gas stations going in, and the land value has just skyrocketed. So the state is offering um, these farmers uh, a a very low um, price 
compared to what the going rate is. So one example is uh, a farmer named Marvin Sanderlin that we talked to who um, is fighting the state over 10 acres of his land that the state wants to pay uh, $3,750 an acre for. Now he feels that the land is probably worth four or five or more times that price. And I talked with um, other folks out there who are are getting sort of si uh, similar offers that they feel are uh, really devaluing the actual uh, worth of their land. Now, this land that these farmers own, it's been in their families for a really, really long time, I assume. I think one of the things that really struck me talking with these different um, families is that yes, this land has been in their families for two or more generations. And to a person, and, and there are people I talked to who I couldn't include in the story, but to a person, people describe this effort to take the land by the state right now um, by drawing parallels to every preceding generation in their family. These are Black families who've had, you know, different struggles to hold on to their land. And they they all framed it in terms of race as well. This offer, these offers from the state, and it's the Tennessee Department of Transportation that's the actor here. The other thing that struck me is that the people I talked to felt like it was just a tremendous um mark of disrespect in making these offers. It wasn't even the dollar value so much as the fact that of, of what these lowball, according to them, offers, um, the message that was conveying to them. And it was a message that I think has echoed in, in prior generations um, in their families who've had to struggle as Black farmers to hold on to what they have. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, we're talking about how this will benefit Ford's Blue Oval City, but the state is making the sales offers. Who are the farmers and the landowners really taking issue with in their eyes? Where do the problems come from? Well, also to a person, uh, the people I talk to stress that they are very happy that Blue Oval is coming to their communities. Um, they have no issue with Ford or Blue Oval, and they really wanted to make sure I understood that their focus was against the state because it's the state taking this action for a state roadway. It's the state that is coming up with these offer figures. Um, you know, of course, Blue Oval is going to benefit, and, and Tennessee, the, the legislature, has agreed to... Um, provide in infrastructure investments and in, in other things, nearly a billion dollars in subsidies to make Blue Oval happen. But but their beef is not with Blue Oval, it's with the state of Tennessee. You know, you mentioned earlier uh, some of the signs of the prosperity that are already popping up in this part of the state. You know, and I'm sure that the landowners want to have their share of this prosperity. Let me ask you, is anyone taking legal action against the state? The, the folks are already 
involved in legal action that the state has taken against them. So they're fighting in court over the land the state wants to take away. People are in various stages of that. Some have already received eminent domain orders. Their their state their land is no longer theirs. The next phase of those legal actions would be settling on a, a, a price. Mm. Uh, I'm not aware of any other concerted effort to kind of proactively take legal action against the state. But I, I am aware of the fact that people are connecting with the NAACP and other advocacy groups to um, to try and get a fair shake. I don't know what that will look like, though. You know, have you spoken to anyone from the state, anyone from TDOT? I have spoken. Yeah, I've spoken with TDOT. Um, they say that this is a very standard practice, and, and it is, you know, the state has to build roadways, freeways, highways, um, and those will go through private property. And they have a, you know, a very uh, structured process for that to happen. Their perspective is this is no different. They're they're working with these folks. Some people have agreed to sell TDOT land without being taken to court. Um, so their position is that this is necessary um, and that they're working through a prescribed process to acquire this land. You know, last year you were on the show to talk about the town of Mason being taken over by the state. I'm curious, how does this situation compare? I th I think it just in being out there and doing interviews both in Mason and in, in West Tennessee with these farming families, the the common theme is this sense, this feeling of being disrespected by the state of Tennessee, feeling taken advantage of by the state of Tennessee because they are Black. People are very open and have said exactly that to me. And, you know, of course, the, the other parallel is this is a, a the state exerting its authority over uh, people in, a, in majority Black areas for the Ford plant. Um, and I think, you know, as I said before, there, there are going to be winners and losers in this transformation out there in this, you know, six billion dollar plant and all of these thousands of workers who are going to be moving out there. And I think the the folks that I've talked to just don't want to be on the losing side. Hmm. So what's next? Where are you expecting this to go? I'm keeping in touch with the folks I talked to out there about their um about the status of their court cases, what they ultimately manage to negotiate with the state or uh or or what they're forced to do um and and I do think that there's going to be more that emerges about the different ways the state um is managing change in that area Anita Wadwani is senior reporter for the Tennessee Lookout she spoke with our host Khalil Ekolona 
You can find the link to her story in today's episode post at thisisnashville.org. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll invite Black farmers into the conversation to tell us about how their families have tended their land in Tennessee for more than a century, even with the odds stacked against them. Join the conversation by tweeting us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. I'm Steve Harouche, and this is Nashville. After peaking in the early 1900s, the number of black farmers in the United States has declined steadily over the past 100 years. In large part, that's because at nearly every turn, they've encountered the kinds of racial inequality that African Americans in this country are all too familiar with. In the 1980s, the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights found that black farmers had been systematically discriminated against, but it would be more than a decade before a class action lawsuit yielded any kind of repayment. Still, in spite of all this, many have carried their families' hard-won farming traditions into the present day. To talk more about this, I'd like to welcome two century farmers. That means their families have been working farms for at least 100 years. Renee Moore-Williams manages Moore Farm in Benton County, and James Butler raises cattle on Butler Farm in Rutherford County. We're also joined by John Wesley Boyd Jr., president and founder of the National Black Farmers Association. Thank you all for being here, and welcome to This is Nashville. Mm, Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. Uh, Great to have you here. Um, so, Renee, I'd like to start with you. Can you, tell, can you tell us just a little bit about your farm? The Moore Family Century Farm was founded in 1870 mm. by John Moore and Harriet Strayhorn. They, the story starts with John Moore, and his family was enslaved in North Carolina. Okay. And... He was a shoemaker, so his middle name was John Shoemaker Moore, and he actually made shoes, and he was paid for his work to make shoes, and his master allowed him to keep the money, and he just basically threw the money into a barrel, and it they didn't have a lot of expenses in slavery, so he just threw the money into a barrel, and so... The Civil War uh, broke out, and the Moore Plantation, uh, they they had a lot of damage. And his slave owner was so distraught that he said, um, you all can leave. He, he released his slaves. And so John Moore, the slaves started to leave. And then John said, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, I have some money in a barrel. And so, <laughs> so he runs back to get his barrel, and... Some of the money was obviously damaged, but he was able to gather some money. And so they started out traveling to try to find a new life. And so he got word that there was some affordable farmland in Tennessee. And so he he moved to t- Tennessee and was actually able to secure 220 acres of land uh, in Benton County, Tennessee. So that begins the story of Moore Family Century Farm. And he 
then went back to North Carolina and said, Harriet, I've got 220 acres. Let's, <laughs> let's, let's, do, let's do this. And so they both had children and combined, they had 21 children, and they all came to Bend County and started a farm. Did you just say 21 children? Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> wow. Um, I, although I guess if you're working a farm, having that many potential yes. farm hands is, is a good is, thing. Is a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Now, now, James, I understand that your family also came from North Carolina. Is that right? Yes. I found that interesting uh, mm-hmm. to hear the hers as well. Yeah. Uh, uh, I don't have as much background, uh, but yes, we just know that they came from North Carolina. Uh, how they ended up in Tennessee, uh, I don't know. Uh, we know that according to the original deed and paperwork uh, associated with it, uh, there was a white co-signer hmm. and he was able to purchase 26 acres. Gotcha. And so, when 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 the farm first got started, do you know what kind of uh, what kind of farming they were doing at the beginning? Uh, precisely, I, I don't know uh, what, what we can can find. I can go back to my great grandfather. Uh, we found um, some various documents, uh, some receipts from things that they uh, purchased and what have you. But our area was very rocky. Mm. Uh, I was. Talked to some other people who were familiar with uh, my grandfather and great grandfather, and they were just saying that between and around those rocks, they grow whatever they could. Because mm. uh, not only you know, was there something to sell, but that was what was needed just to survive. So, um, you know, mainly uh, vegetables and and what have you, and, and animals raised just to live on. Because of course, life was a lot simpler back then. Yeah. Well, I, I understand that there's a. Uh Maybe a reason that it was rocky land that he was able to purchase. Uh, well, I was I was uh, actually after the death of my father, I, was, I had working with an attorney just trying to get the estate settled, and uh, something that he uh, spoke of that I didn't really think of. Uh, he was saying that some of the poorer land, the rockier land, was what was available uh, uh, to um, for minorities to purchase, uh, just because it wasn't considered as as valuable. Right. Have you have you learned other things about uh, about discrimination that your great-grandfather faced at the, around that time besides just sort of getting the less-than-prime land? Well, um, again, we know the, just the culture of the time um, and uh, no, little little stories and, and what have you that I have uh, that been floating around. Uh, but um, I've, again, found lots of little receipts uh, of notes that uh, my grandfather, especially, uh, where he would uh, basically use his collateral, a, 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 a cow or, or a hog or what have you, to get whatever was, was needed. I found lots of those, and I don't know anything about interest rates, uh, prevailing rates at the time, but sometimes interest rates were listed or what have you. Uh, but he did a lot of, a lot of mortgaging of items. Mm. John, how about you? What memories do you have of farming growing up? I'm a fourth-generation farmer from uh, Mecklenburg County, Virginia, and I spent a lot of time with my grandfather, Thomas Boyd, uh, who was born in 1894, so I actually got to spend time with him. And uh, he purchased uh, some land from the the Boyd Plantation from the historic River in Virginia. And uh, he actually slept with his deed underneath his mattress uh, because he was always afraid, you know, someone must come in to, you know, take his land. Mm. Uh, and uh, he said that the land knows no color. And if you take 
care of the land, the land will always take care of you. And uh, he was really into uh, land ownership, and he expressed it to us at a, a very early age of, uh, you know, the importance of and the ability of uh, Black people being able to produce their own food, uh, stay on the land, raise a family. And uh, his his greatest gesture, he would say, was uh, none of his 15 kids had been to jail, you know? <laughs> and uh, my father was the last of 15 children, and my grandmother had him when he was, when uh, she was 50 years of age. Uh, so for all the women who think they can't have children, uh, wow. yeah. she had natural childbirth at home at the age of 50. Mm -hmm. And my father was the 15th child and passed on the uh, family farm uh, over to me as well. So a long, rich uh, history of uh, raising tobacco and corn and peanuts and uh, all of the major uh, items that, that are still popular today. And the land has gotten away from uh, uh, blacks. And, and I was just listening uh, to the uh, the Tennessee story that uh, you know, thirty-five, uh, you know, landowners are looking to have their, their their land taken away from us, and that's people. That's what this is. Uh, uh, they're not paying them a fair price for it, and it's more a continuation of what we experienced uh, from the Jim Crow area of of how blacks lost land through intimate domain and all kinds of schemes, and and we see this as a continuation of that. And someone needs to step in and say, listen, you can't do that, and and pay them nothing for it. You know, $3,700 an acre for, for prime real estate is a is an insult to, mm -hmm. to injury people. Uh, so these are things that, uh, that that are transpiring right now in today's time. So when you hear about the stories that we're speaking about, you can uh, relate to that, to, to what's going on in, in Tennessee. Uh, the companies get richer. In this case, Ford and others get a major highway straight into their plant to, to make more vehicles, and black farmers lose their land. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm senior producer Steve Harouche, sitting in for our host, Khalil Ecolona. We're talking this hour about the legacy of black farmers in Tennessee and beyond. My guests are John Wesley Boyd Jr., Renee Moore Williams, and James Butler. Now, uh, John, you're the founder and president of the National Black Farmers Association. Why did you start this group? Well, I started this group uh, because... Uh... I was a victim of discrimination by the United States Department of Agriculture, where uh, in the 80s, uh, this this loan officer for uh, then was called the Farmers Home Administrator, uh, Administration spat on me, spit on me or whatever you want to call it, mm -hmm. and referred to uh, black farmers with racial epithets, uh, you know, the N word. And, and he would only see black farmers on Wednesday in Mecklenburg County, Virginia. So we named it Black Wednesday. Uh, so, uh, you know, I'm listening to this and, and I want people to understand that I'm still living and this happened to me. Mm. Uh, so this isn't something that happened uh, many, many generations ago. These type of actions by our own government, the very same government is supposed to be laying a hand up to blacks and, and, and being treating us with dignity and respect was the same government entity, USDA, who was systematically putting black people out of business. Uh, through these types of uh, actions. And one day I was sitting in the office and this white farmer comes in, Earl, the county supervisor, the person making the loans, while I'm sitting there, passed him a farm operating loan check for $157,000. Mm -hmm. He had just finished telling me he wasn't going to lend me $5,000. The farmer uh, turns around, he's taking friendly gestures, he walked, headed, headed out the door, and Mr. Garnett says to him, hey, Earl, come back in here next week now, fill out the paperwork because I just used last year's numbers to, to get your loan approved. 
here he didn't even fill out an application uh, to receive the farm operating loans. And I'm pleading with him for $5,000 to plant my uh, a tobacco crop. That's the type of uh, racism and discrimination that black people experience. And he done this and, and as though I was absent in his presence as he changed his tone and became front, very friendly with the white farmer. And when he turned to spoke to us as black farmers, it was a very downward and loud, uh, boastful type of uh, negativity in, in his voice. Mm. Renee, I, I see you've been nodding. Um, what, how does what, what John's sharing resonate with you? Well, I I think the story the story he is sharing is is so important and it it tells the story of our struggle and and I think it's important that we hear that and we understand the impact of the practices that were that were pushed on us as farmers. And I think that once we know that story, then it can inform the next generation about what they need to do to move forward in, in the farming practices that we have. Because I've, I've, I interact often with young people of color that really want farming. They, they know their story, they know their history, and they want to reconnect to the land, and they know how healing and how powerful it is to stay connected mm-hmm. to the land and the, and the pride and the legacy and all those things and the, and the generational wealth that's at- attached to owning farmland. So I think it's important that we know the story, and then we can move forward to start talking about solutions and how we, how we work through this and, and how we empower the next generation of young people that really, really want to farm. And so I, I just I applaud him for what he doing what he's doing and and I'm just so excited to be on the on this panel with him today. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, Renee and James, I think both of you, I understand that you actually have less land to farm on now than your ancestors did. Is that right? Uh, yes, and I'll take the opportunity to thank uh, Mr. Board as well. Uh, I have read of the work that he's done and the, uh, the the change, the difference that he has made through his his organization, and uh, we applaud him for that. Um, uh, yes, uh, a lot of our land uh, has been sold uh, uh, for various reasons, uh, but as was previously said, I will will we'll just add to the the fact that I, I think that the, uh, it's important that the generations to come understand what these plots of land mean. Mm-hmm. Uh, I often try to remind uh, people of my generation and, and others as we look to them as kind of being frivolous, uh, these farms and what have you, understand what they represent. Uh, our ancestors s- struggled and persevered. That's why it's, it still exists. It's because they persevered in the midst of the struggle. Mm-hmm. So uh, that being said, I. I see it as a source of inspiration, a source of encouragement. Uh, but at the same time, again, understanding what it represents, I understand the blood, the sweat, the tears, uh, the humiliation, sometimes everything that they endured just to hold on to it. And again, they persevered. So we have no excuse. So uh, in, ni- in, in 2021, uh, the American Rescue Plan was supposed to address the historical inequity uh, that black farmers have faced. John, can you tell us what happened? Yes, <clears throat> the, the, the measure that you're speaking about is uh, 
a $5 billion uh, measure that uh, personally worked on for over three decades. Uh, we didn't get it in uh, injunctive relief in either of the two settlements that uh, Black farmers had. And I turned back to Congress to, to get that remedy resolved. It was in the Farm Bill in 2016. They, they pulled the language out. And then uh, it, it passed as you spoke to it. And everybody was elated that uh, Black farmers and other farmers of color, Native American, Hispanics, and others, was finally going to get debt relief that we've been asking for for, for decades, which means 120% uh, of total write-off for, for Black and other farmers of color. That means you, you get your deed back from USDA and you can make a fresh start. And then uh, it was repealed uh, by Congress and, and this administration. Uh, so I was very, very uh, uh, disgruntled about it and, and, and unhappy and turned to people like yourself on the airways to speak out against uh, what we see as Black people as another broken promise, like 40 acres and a mule. So we always promise the money and they dangle a carrot and candy in front of us. But when it's time to cast a check, uh, some sort of way, white people uh, intervene and file lawsuits and try to block the measure in court and all of these things. The bottom line is, like my daddy would ask the question, John, did you get the money or or not? It's, it's a one-word answer, yes mm -hmm. or no. In this case, we did not get the money, and we turned uh, to federal court, and, and we filed a lawsuit in October with attorney Ben Crump uh, asking for everybody who uh, who was eligible, the hundred. Uh, the 16,000 farmers of color to get full uh, uh, full redress for 120 percent and, and not a dime less. Renee, when you think about how your family has persisted with with all of what John has just described as, as the kind of the backdrop for that, how does how does that make you feel? Hmm. Deeply moved. I I, I've, I've heard the story over and over again, but when I, every time I hear it, it, it just touches me into deep places. And I may, I may well up before I finish my sentence, but when I think about how they traveled from North Carolina to Tennessee, they didn't have a car. They didn't have walking mules, Wagons, maybe. So that, that that's the first thing that just just strikes me, and then and then getting here and and being able to just navigate through all of this, and and so and then and then then and then stay focused, even in the midst of Jim Crow, Jim Crow in the midst of lynching, in the in the midst of knowing that their fellow sisters and brothers were being hosed down, bitten by dogs. All of those things is just it's just it's just amazing. Uh, Mr. Butler said earlier the 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 resilience, the the you know the, they stayed focused. We're gonna keep we're gonna do whatever it whatever it takes to keep our farm. And so it it, it brings me to tears, it, it brings me joy, it brings me pride, all of those things to just yeah, to just know what I what our ancestors did for us, and and as Mr. Butler said, when I when when I sometimes when I wake up in the morning and I think, man, I can't do this 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 farm thing, I think about the ancestors. And what are you complaining about? Mm -hmm. Nobody's lynching you. Nobody's <laughs> right. So that that's what this that's what all this farm farming means means to me. Yeah, it makes just, me feel. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, just hearing about. This history and and the ancestors, it it just sounds so important. And uh, James, 
do you feel that that same kind of connection to your ancestors? Oh, definitely. Um, I walk uh, land that my uh, great-grandfather walked. Um, the, the story of my great-grandfather uh, starting the school and uh, as well as a, a Methodist Episcopal church. I found the, the deeds and I know where, the, where it was situated and what have you. Uh, so when uh, now our children, I'm the I'm the, the dumbest one in the family. And now as uh, my sisters and all their degrees and advanced degrees and our, our children with uh, their doctorates and what have you, uh, I feel that we're building on uh, the legacy that was started you know, by the ancestors. And my prayers, is, as I said, this is going to be a source of insp inspiration for us to continue on. Well, that was James Butler from Butler Farm. He was joined by Renee Moore-Williams of Moore Farm and John Wesley Boyd Jr., president and founder of the National Black Farmers Association. I want to thank you all for being here. Uh, really appreciate it. Thank you for having us. It's thank been you. an honor. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll look to the future and consider the next generation of black farmers. Join the conversation by tweeting us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Steve Harouche, and this is Nashville. We're talking this hour about the history and traditions of black farmers here in our state. Before the break, we spoke with two farmers whose families have been tending the soil for nearly 300 years combined. Now let's turn our attention to the future. Who is taking up the mantle these days? And who is training the next generation to work the land? For more on that, I'd like to welcome my next guests. Finest Stribling is director of the Tennessee New Farmer Academy and Small Farms Program at Tennessee State University. Rihanna Michelle is co-owner of Water Bear Cooperative Land Project. And Bridget Bryant is with Zysis Garden, a community garden in Nashville. Thank you all for being here and welcome to This is Nashville. Hi. Hey. All right, so Bridget, I understand you have farmers in your family but didn't grow up doing much farming yourself. How did you get started? How I got started, well, I always wanted to be a farmer, watching my grandfather when I was a little girl. And um, my son actually attended school. And so at that school, they offered a community plot. And so I was like, oh, this is a perfect time for me, you know, to start growing. And so I was with that community garden, Nashville Food Project, for about seven years mm -hmm. after that. And each year I kept expanding, asking for more and more land. So after that, I end up at another farm, and then I ended up at TSU with uh, because I had did a course with the New Farmers Academy, and with that they offered land. So I am currently still there and still looking for you know to expand more. What has that experience been like with you on the on the TSU plot? It has been a very nice experience. Um, Along with me just knowing what I already have learned, I, I'm around other farmers, so I start, you know, I learn more. It, you know, when people pass by, if I have a question, I, I'm able to ask some questions. And so it has been a very good experience for me. Now, Finest, you run the Tennessee New Farmer Program at, uh, or Academy. Can you tell me more about how that program helps folks like Bridget? 
Uh, yes. Uh, basically, with that new Farm Academy program, it lends resources and experts in for different topics, depending on what your area of interest is as it relates to farming. And basically what it is, a seven-month program, training program, that farmers have an opportunity to learn different aspects of farming, resources available, agencies available. And one of the things they really don't know is it's, it's free. So so you, you get an opportunity to know who the major players are in agriculture going through the new Farm Academy program. What, what kinds of things are, are people doing over that over that seven months? Basically what they're doing, we'll start out talking about plants, soils. We talk about beekeeping. We talk about business plans and different financial, you know, the financial statements. And if you don't know how to drive a tractor, we go out and learn how to drive a tractor. All right. We hook up irrigation systems. We talk about cattle, small roofs, so all the different facets of agriculture that you can get involved with. And it's just a, with that appetite about things that you can do and get involved with. Mm. Uh, Have you seen the program grow since it started? Yes. Oh, my gosh. We started in 2014 with only nine participants. And every year we're growing. This year for 2023, we're in Middle Tennessee, we're up to 65 participants. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) That's definitely a growth. Um, Rihanna, how does your family's history with farming inform what you do with the Water Bear Cooperative? Yeah, so my I'm originally from Texas. Um, my family on both sides of my family are six, seven generations in East Texas, Marshall, Texas. And um, my family actually were cattle farmers, um, pigs, and that was our primary uh, thing that we worked on. Also wearing my little family hoodie today, uh, Cole's Garage and Record <laughs> <Right>. Service. <laughs> um, and in that small town, that was how our family um, was able to come together. And I, I mentioned before talking to someone earlier, I am a newer farmer in the sense that it is in my family and my lineage, but I do feel like I'm in that generation that is bridging getting connected, reconnected back to agrarian ways, back to our traditions mm-hmm. and uh, the, just the importance of continuing that on. I, I just actually visited my uncle not too long ago and um, he is older and he's in that that generation in his 70s. And I'm in that space where I'm like trying to answer the call to really uh, return to the land, take care of our family's land. But also deeply for me, the Water Bear Cooperative Land Project is also helping people to understand land communion, land uh, stewardship. It's it's one thing to get the land, but it's a different thing to take care of it, to mm-hmm. build relationship, uh, to be in our, even just our ancestral connection to land. A lot of black folks have very complex relationships with not even land, but even being outdoors and the ways in which white supremacist terror has taught us that that is not, uh, that it is something to be ashamed of. Mm. And I'm in a generation, there's a movement across this country that I've been able to be a part of, of people who are like, this is our our birthright. This is our way of being. And even in the side of the, ju- the justice side of things, being able to say, hey, not only is this our lineage, but we help build this country and and we deserve to be able to have space to be able to be in our dignity and, and raise our families and things of that nature. So Water Bear Cooperative Land Project is really hitting on two different things, the cooperative nature, uh, how do we reestablish the cooperation and the collectivism 
that we need to be successful, not only just as people, but as business owners, that it's it's actually very, very hard to be a, a farmer uh, and in any type of agricultural industry. It is best and it has been our best uh, strategy over many, many years to be in cooperation and build cooperatives. So we're coming out of the lineage of a Fannie Lou Hamer's Freedom Farm Cooperative and on the land trust side of things, like being able to not only take care of the land and work in cooperation, but to be able to keep the land that we have in perpetuity. And so we are uh, exploring the model of a community land trust as a way to also help preserve land and, and not um, be in the conversation around black land loss. You you uh, you used a term a little earlier where you said land stewardship. Can yeah. You, can you talk more about that? <laughs> yeah. So. When I speak of land stewardship, I think I use that language over land ownership uh, because to us, it's not just a fact of there's so many fights that happen when we're solely focused on ownership. We were just talking about that or whose hands it in, is in versus being in the space of wherever I am at, I am in connection with the land. So mm -hmm. I am a, I consider myself at this point an urban farmer. <laughs> I, you know, I tend to garden in my backyard and I grow a copious amount of things. But I think even in that, how do we be uh, stewards to, you know, not litter and, and take over our communities? And so even in the spaces that we may not even have ownership yet, how are we saying that we have a right to be in connection with land and take care of it and be in reciprocal relationships? So that's what I differentiate a little bit more about land stewardship. It's a way of life. It's a practice of being in connection and not necessarily fixated on ownership and, and that part of it. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm senior producer Steve Harouche, sitting in for our host, Khalil Ekolona. We're talking about the next generation of black farmers here in our state. My guests are Finest Stribling, Bridget Bryant, and Rihanna Michelle. Now, uh, Finest, uh, a lot of times when we think about farmland, we're not necessarily thinking about the city. Um, what do you want people to know about urban farming? Well, what, what urban farming is, you have that sense of community. And when you really just check out the landscape and drive through a lot of your cities, you have you know, vacant lots, you know, in a lot of communities where you could have a sense of community where you can grow. When you start looking at food, there's food insecurity, food security. I just think that's an opportunity when you start looking at urban agriculture. And I think we're at a point now when you look at what's going on within USDA, they're really looking at this across the country with urban agriculture, and I think it has its place and purpose. So, I, so I'm really looking forward to what's really going on with urban agriculture, especially with, especially with New Farm Academy. I have a lot of folks that go into urban agriculture, and they realize that, you know, you don't have to be large scale to be profitable and sustainable. You mm -hmm. can do it on small scale, and that's one of the things that we talk about in our New Farm Academy program. Are, are there other programs um, sort of... Uh I mean, in addition to the to the urban farming and other things, are there other programs that 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 you offer that that people could be um, signing up for if they're interested in it? Well, within the uh, to, uh, extension service, we have a lot of educational programs. Uh, we are across the state of Tennessee. We are we are also a land grant with the University of Tennessee as well as Tennessee State University. Two land grants here in Tennessee, and University of Tennessee is is within all ninety five counties. So I always tell tell my participants to make sure you go in and learn who your county agent is, 
because that's what we do at the university. We provide educational outreach mm -hmm. to farmers. So, and a lot of times I'm realizing that a lot of our participants are new to farming. And they have, you know, if you're not traditional farmers, you have no clue who we are. We don't know who you are. So that's one of the things that I stress uh, in my class, that go find out who your county agent is, and that way you can be in tune to the educational program that's available because there's something going on all the time across the state of Tennessee, whether you in, you know, goats, whether you sheep, live, you know, large animals, horses, poultry, vegetables, uh, small fruit. We have something for you within the extension service. Now, earlier in the show, we talked about the hardships black farmers have faced both historically and in the present day. Um, as we heard, farmers in West Tennessee are seeing low offers for land they own and farm to make way for Blue Oval City. Rihanna, in your mind, is this just about farmland or, or do you think it's connected to something bigger? Um, I'm, I'm, I think I'm a little unfamiliar with that specific case. Um, could you give a little bit more context? Well, well, basically that the, the uh, black farmers in, in West Tennessee feel like they're getting these lowball offers for their uh, land. Um, mm -hmm. And they, they definitely, they feel that it's because they are black that they're being offered yeah. a, a fraction of, of what they consider to be the value of that land. Yeah, um, I definitely feel like that's a factor. And it's been used as a factor a lot of times to not only just diminish uh, the value of it, but whenever we are trying to build wealth for our families and we find that not only is it being marketed down in ways that don't help us to build and generate, but the even just sheer inequity and in being able to get funding for that. So a lot of people don't always recognize that it's actually really hard um, if you're not on, on a mass production scale or, or to enter some of these industries in a, in a way, if you're like a smaller operating farm and, and that. And so I do think that a lot of the racial dynamics have been a strategy that have been utilized forever uh, to not only just, um, I mean, we even see it here in, in the urban context that the spaces in which black people exist are, are sold now at exorbitant amounts. But when the black people that were living there and those communities were living there, there was no investment. There was no um, foresight of, of this being some type of mecca of business. And so we see across class and racial lines the ways in which, you know, black people and the things that we have created have been completely under undervalued and um, disinvested from. So not not a surprise. <laughs> yeah. Now, uh, Bridget, you, you told our producer that you have often found yourself to be the only black person that, at conferences and, and other uh, other sort of spaces. How, how does that hit you when you find yourself in that situation? Well, for me, it's kind of disheartening because I'm excited about growing. Anybody that knows me know I, if I see a plant grow, I'm getting hyped. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, everybody should feel this way if you grow. But like I went to a conference, a cut flowers conference, and, you know, I kind of looked around and I was like, okay. You know, and I was the only, not only the only black person, I was the only black female there. So it was a little sad for me because I'm, I know that that industry is um, is an opportunity, uh, especially for farmers, to be able to do cut flowers is something that's growing. 
And for me to look around and be the only black person, period, in there, yes, it was disheartening. And I was also recently at a conference and there were black people there, but I wanted to see more of us there because I know in agriculture there is money to be made. Um, there are opportunities in agriculture, but we just kind of look at agricultural different. You know, we look at it more from the slavery aspect of it because like our connection with the land was was kind of disrupted mm. with slavery. Um, so we look at it differently. A lot of black people look at it differently. And so they don't look at it as being an opportunity uh, where it, it definitely is an opportunity. Uh, there are, like Finan said, there are different classes that they have and, you know, different things that they workshops. And if we're not there to learn what's going on in the agricultural business from that aspect, then we won't know. And we will still be blind, you know, to the opportunities that are available for us. Well, uh, how have you been able to find community? I have been, actually, there has been uh, recently, um, there are a group of women uh, from just me being at a community garden, mm -hmm. uh, were helping out at a community garden, uh, Miss Pearl. Yeah. And so, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and so we kind of like, you know, are starting to get together where with one person needs to, you know, help mulching, they mulch. Uh, I told them, I was like, okay, with my, my, you know, Plants go in the ground. I will need assistance. We uh, gather once to learn about uh, just different things uh, as far as farming. So that community is starting to build itself up. I do have other uh, friends that are in that community. And so that, for me, it it makes me really, really happy because there's people that I can connect with, that I can talk with. I can talk days and days about plants and they understand what I'm saying. So <laughs> I don't feel like an outcast or I don't feel, you know, like I'm crazy. But it's a beautiful thing um, to be able to have that community that understands what I'm saying. That does sound like a beautiful thing. That's Bridget Bryant with Zysis Garden. She was joined by Rihanna Michelle, co-owner of Water Bear Cooperative Land Project, and Finus Stribling, director of the Tennessee New Farmer Academy and Small Farms Program at Tennessee State University. Thank you all so much for being here today. Thank really you enjoyed for it. Me. Thank you for having me. Thanks for tuning in this hour. This is Nashville is a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcast. Today's episode was produced by Magnolia McKay. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos-Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tudhope. The masterminds behind our theme music are LaRange and Namir Blade. Special thanks to Dr. Carol Van West and Nella Frierson. The conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at This Is Nashville, find us on Instagram, and tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm senior producer Steve Harouche. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody.